0: This evening, if you would, just please turn in your Bibles to Philemon, and we're going to be focusing on a few verses, verses 10 through 16, and we're going to focus on one issue, really, it's the providence of God, and, you know, as we look at the the days we're living in, as we see this world in a total mess, we see our nation, just the immorality that is just growing by leaps and bounds You know, it's always amazing as I uh, turn on the TV and I, you know, after this whole homosexual thing happened with the Supreme Court, how many advertisements were pro-homosexual? How fast did they get those things going? And you look at that and you go, what in the world is going on? And here's the wonderful thing. God's got a plan and he's got a purpose. And he's working something out. And that's what we have to rest in, and that's you know what we'll see this evening as we go through these verses here in Philemon. You know he, He's still on the throne. I know sometimes you turn on the news and it doesn't seem that way, but the Lord is still on the throne, and everything is going to work according to his plan and his purposes. So for us as Christians, we don't need to fear, but we need to keep our eyes focused, and I think that's the key. When we start looking at all the things that are going on around us, we get fear, we get hopeless. But when we keep our eyes focused on the Lord, there is that comfort, there's that hope uh, that He's in control. Now just a little background information regarding this letter and kind of set the stage for what we're going to be looking at tonight. Paul is writing to and about uh, two people, actually. Uh, Philemon, who was a very wealthy man who lived in Colossae. he owned some slaves, which was, you know, very common in those days. He was a believer who was probably converted by the witness of Paul, according to verse 19 here in Philemon. And it's possible that Philemon was saved during Paul's third missionary journey. He spent some three years in Ephesus, which is close to Colossae. And his house... Philemon's house was where the church in Colossae gathered. At least that was one of the churches, at least in the city, so it was probably a good size home, and it appears that his son, Archippus, held a leadership position in the church, we don't we can't really be dogmatic about that but that's possible uh Ep-ephia is Philemon's wife we kind of see that in the first uh, or in the second verse excuse me we see her name mentioned and that would make sense if Paul is writing a personal letter to someone he speaks to Philemon he speaks to his wife and probably to Philemon's son as well now one of the reasons this letter was written was because one of Philemon's slaves Onesimus Not only ran away, but it seems that he took or stole some of the things from Philemon before he ran away. And talk about the providence of God here. Onesimus hightails it out of Colossae, and he ends up where? He ends up in Rome. Why? Why Rome? Well, he's thinking, I'm going to just blend in with all the riffraff, man. It's going to be easy. And God got a hold of Onesimus through the Apostle Paul, who was a prisoner there in Rome, under house arrest. You see, through this all, Onesimus got saved. He's a believer, which is incredible when you look at the providence of God here. Now, keep in mind that Rome had probably over 60 million slaves, 25% of their population were slaves. And here's the thing any rebellious slave would be put to death or dealt with severely, they didn't get away with anything. You see, Rome feared an uprising from these slaves, and to kind of keep things in control, to try and keep order, they dealt with any rebellion, which would eliminate that slave, and it would cause the other slaves to take notice and go, hey, you know what, I'm not going down that same path. Now, if the owner didn't want to put to death his rebellious slave, they would brand him with a hot iron. They would put the letter F on their forehead. Uh, It was to signify that they were a runaway, a fugitive. It was a mark for life for them. That this was a troublemaker. You saw him out, you go, hey man, keep your eye on that guy. I mean, he, you know, Who knows what he's going to do. And Onesimus was in trouble here. There's no way he could return now to Philemon. And yet he got saved. And he's not sure what Philemon's going to do. And Paul's trying to ease that with this letter. Because... Philemon could put Onesimus to death, though. Or could brand him as a fugitive. So Paul wants Philemon to forgive Onesimus. Because why? Because he's a brother in the Lord now. And yeah, he had every right to put him to death. But think about Philemon. He's saved as well. He's living at a higher standard than the law of man. Philemon was living under the law of God, which calls for forgiveness. You know, there's a lot of laws in our land that we as Christians don't follow, right? I mean, it's legal to have an abortion. Do Christ, or Should Christians be having abortions? Absolutely not. But the law of the land says you can, but you're held to a higher standard. And that's what Paul is going to be doing here with Philemon. He's saying, basically telling him, look, you live on a higher standard. You need to forgive. You've been forgiven much. Now you need to forgive this slave, Onesimus. Now, the authenticity of this letter... For the most part, everyone believed it was Paul who wrote this letter. It wasn't until the 4th century that uh, some tried to discredit that. But in Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 and 9, we're told this. Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will make known to you all things which are happening here. So he travels, Onesimus travels to Colossae with Tychicus, who brought these letters from Paul. I mean, think about it. He he doesn't list them as, you know, a slave. He says, a faithful and beloved brother. Why? Because he's a brother in the Lord now. Now, Philemon is part of what is called the prison epistles or those letters that were written by Paul. He was in prison in Rome during his first Roman imprisonment, probably in the early 60s. The other prison epistles are Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Now, here's the thing, you know, and I've heard non-Christians uh, post on Facebook and try to make arguments against this, but what, why doesn't Paul or even Jesus deal with this issue of slavery? Why doesn't the scripture speak against it? In Rome, many of these slaves were treated as possessions, not even as a human being. They put slaves to death for the smallest error just to watch a person die. It's interesting, in the American Civil War, both sides used the Bible. They used the scriptures to prove their case either for or against slavery. So it's a problem, and maybe it should have been dealt with. And I think it it was dealt with. But we tend to think of it, we need some laws. But think about this. I like the way Alexander McLaren put it. He said, first, the message of Christianity is primarily to individuals and only secondary to society. It leaves the units whom it has influenced to influence the mass. Second, it acts on spiritual and moral sentiment and only afterwards and consequently on deeds or institutions. Third, it hates violence and trusts wholly to enlightened conscience. So it meddles directly with no political or social arrangements, but lays down principles which will profoundly affect these and leaves them to soak into the general mind. Absolutely. As Christians, shouldn't we be affecting the society that we're living in? Sure we should. We live on a higher standard. That's one of the problems we see in the church today is that we've lowered the bar. We lowered God's standard. And now we're living like the unsaved. And that shouldn't be. You see, we don't have to really worry about the laws. Why? Because God is interested in the heart. And you see people getting saved, guess what? Their lifestyle is going to change because God changed them inwardly. It's, I mean, it just makes sense. I mean, Isn't there laws that say you shouldn't murder? Do people still murder? Yeah. What about drugs? Oh, yeah, they still take drugs. What about stealing? Oh, yeah, there's laws, but they still do it. What about speeding? Oh, yeah, now we all get in trouble on that one, huh? There are laws, but we as Christians should be living on a higher standard. We don't need those laws because we really have the law of God showing us what's right and what's wrong. And the way we live out our lives not only honors God, but it affects the people around us. You see, it was really Christianity that finally did away with slavery. And it wasn't because laws were changed, it was because people's hearts were really changed. And it led to a change in the laws. So, this evening, the focus again is the providence of God. And the Lord really put it upon my heart to deal with this issue because... I think so many Christians are in turmoil right now when they look at society. But we have to understand the hand of God in everything that is going on. In our own lives, in the lives of our nation, and in the life of this world. And, you know, I understand as you're going through a difficult situation, you may not understand why. Maybe it's even discouraging to you. And you may be wondering, what in the world is God doing? But as you look back, as you pass through that situation, what do you do? You see the hand of God upon your life. You go, wow, that was awesome. It wasn't awesome when you were going through it. It was horrible. But maybe we should look at the situations we face a little differently as we're going through them. Because then we'll have that peace, that comfort from God, knowing he's in control. Instead of waiting till we get to the other side of the situation and looking back going... What was I thinking? Of course, God was in control. He has a plan. He has a purpose, not only for my life, but for this world. And really, that's my prayer as we go through these passages here in Philemon this evening, and looking at a few other scriptures, just trusting in the providence of God, trusting in the hand of God upon our lives, that God means things for good. Even though we may not see it in the present situation that we're facing. And so that's kind of our background. We're just going to read through, starting in verse 10 of Philemon, where Paul wrote this. He said, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten well in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I am sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is, my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel." But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by my compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So again, you know. This is this would make a great movie. Here's this slave, Onesimus, and he makes this great escape. And he steals some stuff from his boss, Philemon. He steals from him, from his owner. And he makes his escape to Rome. And he, you know, Rome was a wicked place. It was immoral. And he felt, you know, I'll just fit in with everyone else. No one will find me out here. Well, God did. You know, you can't hide from God. And it's amazing. He meets Paul. I don't know how he met Paul. I'm not sure. I mean, I want to ask him when I get to heaven, you know, what happened? Did someone bring you to Paul? So there's a guy in in prison I want you to listen to. You got to hear this guy. And they brought him? I don't know. You think, man, how lucky was he? And I don't believe in luck. I don't think there's good luck and I don't think there's bad luck. I think there's the hand of God. And I don't know how Onesimus felt in this, but. I know how he feels now, you know. You see, God took this very bad situation. Onesimus running away, stealing from his master, and he turns it around for good. And as Paul spoke to this young runaway slave Onesimus, this this young runaway slave, this kid gives his heart to the Lord. He gets saved. He asks Jesus to be Lord and Savior of his life. You know, this is not the type of person you think would get saved, right? You think of all people, this guy is never going to come to the Lord. Look at how bad he is. I hate to tell you, God died for bad people, which includes every single one of us. Now, his name, Onesimus, means profitable. And I like that. In fact, in verse 11, Paul's making this play on words here. He said that, He that was unprofitable, Onesimus, is now profitable to you and me. Now he's going to live up to his name because he has a new nature, he's a new creation in Christ. That's the reality. You know, too many Christians want to live in the past. Paul said, therefore, if anyone in Christ is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. Why do you want to live in the past? You know, here some people give their testimony and it's, you know, 20 minutes about all the garbage that they did in the past and it's 2 minutes about the Lord. No, reverse that. 2 minutes about your evil past, focus on the Lord. And you know what? Those old things have what? They've passed away. They're gone. Now, So many recovery programs and stuff, they always focus, you know, you're going to be an alcoholic, you'll always be an alcoholic. You're a drug abuser, you're always going to be a drug abuser. Sex offender, you're always going to be a sex offender. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, if anyone is in Christ, who does that include? Anyone who gets saved. Anyone. He's what? A new creation. The old things have passed away. All things are new. Now, granted, that old nature likes to resurrect itself from time to time. But I don't have to live there. I don't have to be a slave to sin anymore. I could be free in Christ. You see, Paul said, if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Where is your focus? What do you fill in your mind with? What do you fill in your life with? Who are you hanging around? That's important. And I'm so thankful we're a new creation in Christ. I don't want to live that old life anymore. I, I want that gone. And Paul says, it is. Now, just because Onesimus got saved doesn't mean what he did is forgotten, Right? I mean, if you rob a bank and you get saved, they don't, the, you know, in, in jail, they don't go, well, since you came to Jesus, you're free to go. No, there's still consequences to your actions. And the same is here for Onesimus. He, you know, he ran away. He's responsible to pay restitution for the things he stole from Philemon. He could even be put to death still. So Paul is sending him back to Philemon, and he wants Philemon to treat him as he would treat Paul, to forgive him for his actions. And I I love, in verses 15 and 16 here, what Paul says. He says, for perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. You see what Paul's saying here? Look, look at the hand of God on this situation, Philemon. Look at what God is doing here. This unprofitable slave, this one who ran away, stole things from you, has come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He's now profitable to you and to God. He's a brother in the Lord, part of the body of Christ. Thus receive him accordingly. And Paul just laid it all out. He wanted Philemon to respond in the Christian way. Not according to the flesh, which obviously would be anger, but with the love of God, the forgiveness of God. And what happened to this man Onesimus? Well, we're not sure, but you know, as you look back at some of the history, in 110 AD, the bishop of Ephesus was a man named Onesimus. Could it be this man? Could be. We don't know for sure. It's very possible. If Onesimus was in his late teens, or early 20s, when he ran away, he'd probably be around 70 in 110 A.D. He could have been the bishop in Ephesus. It's possible. And, you know, the hand of God, the plan of God, the providence of God is working And yes, Onesimus had to respond to it. God didn't force Onesimus to get saved. But God was working out those details, and look at what took place. I mean, this is a masterpiece, and it brings glory to God. He he took something that was unprofitable, and now he's making it profitable for him. And look around the room, because God's done that with every single one of us. We were unprofitable to God, and God saved us. He's cleansed us. And now we could serve him. I mean, that's the most glorious thing, if you think about it, that anyone could do. I mean, we would be excited to serve, you know, a high-ranking official. I would say the President of the United States, but that's probably not a popular thing right now. But a high-ranking official. We get to serve the creator of heaven and earth. And all he wants us to do is to love him and to trust him that he has a plan, he has a purpose for our lives. What a great God we have. And we just have to trust him. Some of you are a little bit older and you remember the show Father Knows Best. Our Heavenly Father knows best. Make no mistake about it. God doesn't, you know, is not up in heaven going, whoops, no, no. There's no whoops. We think that down here because we're only looking at part of the picture. We see what's right in front of us. God sees the whole picture. It's like, hang in there. Don't give up. Stay focused on me. Don't look at what's going on here. Look at me. Receive my strength. And I think, you know, for us as Christians, again, it could get very, very difficult sometimes. Do you realize, and this shocks a lot of people, that even Satan is fulfilling the plan of God? Absolutely. He's given people a choice. You see, we don't only, if there was only God to choose from, that's not a choice. Now we have a choice. Follow our Lord and Savior or follow Satan. What amazes me, what blows me away, is one-third of the angels rebelled with Lucifer. They turned from God. They were in heaven worshiping God, and they turned from him. That's amazing to me. Well, it's also amazing is that after the millennial reign of Christ, Satan is loosed for a season and there are many people who turn against God. They've been with him for five, six, seven, eight, nine hundred years living in the kingdom age with Jesus and then they turn from him. I, I scratch my head at that. It blows me away. But people do have choices. But here's the thing. Is God's plan and purpose going to come to pass? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. Think about when the followers of Jesus turned on him, when the Jewish religious leaders sentenced him to death, when Rome nailed him to the cross of Calvary, and six hours later he died. You think that there was rejoicing in the realms of the demonic world, Satan was rejoicing? I think so. But three days later, Jesus, what, rose from the grave. He paid in full the penalty for our sins, and now he's conquered death. You see, no longer will sin keep us from God because the penalty has been paid. No longer is there the sting of death because Jesus has removed that sting of death. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And you see the providence of God in all that. He knows the end from the beginning. He has a plan. He's, he's still working. And again, you know, God doesn't force people to do certain things to fulfill his plan. I mean, some people look at Judas. Well, you know, he was just fulfilling the purposes and plans of God, so how could God hold him accountable? Because Judas had a choice. How do I know that? Because even at the Last Supper, where did Judas sit? In the place of honor. I think at that, at, at that last supper, Jesus was giving him an opportunity. And Judas rejected it and left and betrayed him. But it filled the plan and purpose of God. Now, if I was to ask you, that's a very simple question. How many of you believe in the providence of God or the hand of God in your life? I am sure every single one of you would raise your hand and say, of course I do. That's ridiculous. Of course I believe in that. But what happens when we go through tough situations? We begin to doubt God. We begin to wonder what he's doing or I don't know, he's too busy to help or whatever. And that's not the case. You know, I think we, it's easy to believe when nothing is going on, but when things get tough, that makes it harder. Because you really have to trust in him. You know, a few months ago we did this, looked at the life of Joseph and What an amazing story when you look at this young man's life and what God was doing. You know, Jacob, also called Israel, he had 12 sons. One of them he loved more than the others. I think he trusted Joseph more than he trusted his other sons. And Joseph had these, you know, a couple of dreams where he was being exalted and not only did his brothers bow down to him, but so did his mom and dad and his brothers really didn't like that. If, you know, you have brothers, you know, if you did that to them, they wouldn't really appreciate it. You know, I still in competition with my brothers from time to time and you know, you want to be tough. You want to be the one that you're lifted up and you know, that they didn't like being put down, even though that was the hand of God. And so one day Jacob sends his son Joseph to Shechem. Well, why? Well, to check on his brothers. Why? Because he didn't trust them. Hey, go see if these guys are doing the work they're supposed to be doing. Follow up. Find out what's going on in their lives. Find out what they're doing. And when they saw Joseph coming, they would say, man, we've got to kill this kid. He is just an irritant. And instead of killing him, though, they threw him in a pit. They sold him as a slave to Midianite slave traders who sold him to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard. And Joseph's brothers return home without Joseph. They come to Jacob and they bring Joseph's long sleeved, multicolored robe covered in blood. They don't say anything really. And Jacob sees this and he goes, Oh my gosh, this is Joseph's. A wild animal must have killed him. And none of the brothers said anything. Yeah. Good. You can believe that, Dad? We're good. But you think they were going to say, well, you know, Joseph's not coming back. We sold him to to some Midianite slave traders. No, no way. So here's Joseph. He's in Potiphar's house as a slave. He ends up being in charge of everything. God blesses him. And then here comes trouble. Potiphar's wife starts hitting on Joseph. She wanted to sleep with him. So she sends all the other servants out, tried to seduce Joseph, and he ran away. And when Potiphar found out, Joseph was placed in prison. And that tells me that that Potiphar knew that his wife had cheated before. Because if his slave was trying to rape his wife, don't you think he would have put that slave to death? Absolutely. But he didn't. So now he's in prison. He finds favor once again with the prison guard. And one day he runs into Pharaoh's butler and baker. They were placed there by Pharaoh because Pharaoh found out one of them was trying to kill him. He didn't know which one, so he put them both in prison until he could sort the matter out. And in prison, they have a dream. Both of them did, and they didn't know what it meant. And Joseph hears about this, and he tells the butler This is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Now within three days Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your place, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand according to the former manner. When you were his butler, but but remember me when it is well with you, and please show kindness to me and make mention of me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. So the baker hears the good story about the butler and goes, Hey, what's going on with me? He probably shouldn't have asked that question, but he did. And and Joseph says, this is the interpretation of it. Three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh from you. Well, thank you very much. I mean, we're not really told how he felt about that, but it probably wasn't good. But that's exactly what happened. Three days, the baker was hanged and the butler was restored to his position with Pharaoh. Pharaoh. And as he goes back to Pharaoh, he forgets about Joseph. And he doesn't forget about Joseph for a day or a week or a month or six months or a year. For two full years, he forgets about what Joseph did, the interpretation of the dream. There was no reason for him to be in prison. And all he was supposed to do was tell Pharaoh, hey, look, you know, there's this guy in prison. He's a good guy. He hasn't done anything wrong. But he forgot. Well, God gives Pharaoh a couple of dreams that he didn't understand. You know, seven cows, good looking, solid. Uh, But then out of the river came up seven cows that looked bad, skinny, ugly. He also had a dream about seven heads of grain, healthy, and then seven heads of grain that came up afterwards. They looked thin, and they devoured the seven plump grains, and they didn't even look any better than they did before. And the dream ended. And Pharaoh woke up, and the butler was there, and saw something was wrong, and he said, well, you know, I've had these dreams, they're really troubling me, I don't know what they mean, and it was like the light went on. Oh, yeah, <laughs> there's this guy named Joseph, he's in prison, you know, he interpreted my dream, and, you know, the baker's dream, and he was right on with it. And so they call for Joseph. And in in Genesis 41, verses 25 through 32, it says then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads are seven years. The dreams are one. And the seven thin and ugly cows which came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty heads blighted by the east wind are seven years of famine. This is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do, and said, Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, seven years of famine will arise, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. And the famine will deplete the land, so the plenty will not uh, be known in the land because of the famine following, for it will be very severe. And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice, because the thing is established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. And Pharaoh sees the hand of God upon Joseph, the wisdom of God, and he places him in second in charge in all of Egypt, in charge of the food gathering for those first seven years, and then for the distribution of the food for the seven years of famine. It's the providence of God. And yet the story's not over. The hand of God is still moving. The hand of God is still working here. This is not the end of the story. You see, this famine not only affected Egypt, but it affected the land of Canaan where Jacob and his sons were living. And when they heard about this food program down in Egypt, he sends his sons down to Egypt, except for Benjamin, the brother of Joseph. And they come down and they come before Joseph, they didn't recognize it as their brother, him as their brother, and he didn't tell them Joseph recognized them. And they begin to tell him that, you know, they have a brother who died and they have another brother Benjamin who's still in Canaan. And and Joseph starts to threaten them as being spies. And one of them is going to be placed in prison until they bring this other brother, Benjamin, back to Egypt. Now, these guys are shocked. They're like, oh, my gosh, now what are we going to do? So they place Simeon in prison. They return home with the food they came for. But then something they didn't expect. Joseph had secretly placed all the money they used to buy the food back in their sacks. And so they return home without Simeon, they have all the food, and they have the money. It's like they stole the food. How are they going to go back to get Simeon now? I mean, it's really a mess. When you look at it, you go, oh my gosh, Lord, what are you doing here, <laughs> right? This is, a, this is horrible. In fact, in Genesis 42, 36, it says, Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me. Joseph is no more, Simeon is no more, and you want to take Benjamin? All these things are against me. You think Jacob saw the providence of God in this situation? No. Not at all. What he was looking at was the present situation that was before him. I'm dead. This is horrible. You're ruining my life. Joseph is gone. Now Simeon's in prison and you want to take Benjamin too? I can't take this anymore. Everything is against me. Nothing is for me. Life is bad. And yes, through human eyes, he's right. And I think sometimes we feel that way. We're we're in a situation, oh, everything is against me. Nothing is going right. And I wonder if we could, you know, step back and take a look and see how the whole thing works out. We go, oh, that's what he's doing, huh? And maybe, you know, sometimes we're not going to see how this is all going to play out until we get to the other side. It may not happen that way. Well, Joseph's brothers eventually have to go back to Egypt. They have to get some food. They take their brother Benjamin, and Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, and he has this emotional reunion with them. And then they go back, they get their father, and Joseph's father comes down to Egypt, a 265-mile journey or so, and they see each other before Jacob dies. Now, Jacob brings his family down to Egypt, 70 people, and they had plenty of food during that famine. God sustained them. And out of those 70 people that went down to Egypt after some 400 years later, they left with over 2 to 3 million people in the Exodus. Do you see the hand of God, the providence of God in that situation? God was building a nation. And he was building them down in Egypt to bring them back into the land of Canaan. It was the hand of God. Was everything against Jacob? Absolutely not. Everything was for Jacob and his family. He just didn't see it. He missed it. You know, Paul in Romans 8 said, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or pearl, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. May we remember that. You see, don't let difficult times give you a false idea about God. He's on our side. He's working for good. Even though we may not see it in the short term. But it is the hand of God. A few months back we were at a uh, Pastors get together, and there was a, a missionary um, who is in Amman, Jordan, him, his wife, and his children, and they are she's teaching in a school in Jordan. she's able to share a little bit. Uh, if people ask her questions, they, she has the freedom to do that. If they ask for a Bible, they can hand out Bibles. They are ministering to Syrians who are crossing into Jordan, fleeing ISIS and here's the thing that really got to me one day this little girl said speaking about what isis is doing daddy do they kill children think about that you know you might be thinking what in the world am i doing here in jordan with my family i'll wait till they're grown up this is this is not good but they understand where god has called them Yes, it's a dangerous place, but it's the safest place if they're in the will of God. You see, that's to me, the most dangerous place to be is outside the will of God. The safest place to be in the most dangerous part of the world is in the center of God's will. Joseph here, we see, is a man of faith. He saw the bigger picture. And even though at times he may have thought that, man, I don't get what's going on, but I know God is working He even told his brothers, you know, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. Wow. I mean, I wish I was that gracious all the time. Think about that. He was ripped from his family, sold into slavery, accused of rape, thrown into prison, And he says, you guys meant this all for evil. Look at what God did. He turned it out for good. How about when you're going through situations and people are saying things or doing things against you, understand God's got a bigger plan. See, that was Joseph here. God meant this for good. In order to bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. Look at what God has done. He's he's saved Israel, Jacob, and his family. And like I said, some 400 years later, two to three million people are leaving Egypt. That's a nation. Was born out of something that looked like a total mess. And as Jacob said, everything is against me. No, everything was for you to bring you to this place. We have to look at things through the eyes of faith. Looking at the hand of God. Trusting God. You know, there's a story about the only survivor of a shipwreck washed up on a small uninhabited island. And he cried out to God to save him. And every day he scanned the horizon for help, and nothing was coming. And he was exhausted. He eventually managed to build a rough hut and put a few of his possessions in it. And one day he was hunting for some food, and he was coming back, and he arrived home and found that his hut was in flames. It was destroyed. smoke rising up was just the worst thing that could happen. It was just devastated by this. And then early the next day, a ship drew near the island and rescued him. And it's like, man, how did you know I was here? We saw your smoke signal. You know, what he thought was bad, everything was against him. You know, I spent days building this hut. Now it's up in flames. was used for good to rescue him. And so... It may not seem like it now, but your present difficulty may be instrumental to your future happiness or for the good that God is doing not only in you, but those around you. You know, I think, have you ever heard of the Eeyore mentality? No? Winnie the Pooh? Eeyore? Whoa, well, everything is bad. It's just terrible out there, right? That, that's many Christians, you start talking with them and it's just horrible, there's nothing that's ever good, and you're almost afraid to ask him how you're doing because it's really bad. It, all the time it's bad? I'd rather be Tigger the Tiger. That's just me. I'd rather be bouncing around with joy, the joy of the Lord than moping around complaining. We don't see Joseph complaining. I probably would in this situation. I'd, but I'd rather be Eeyore, who's just enjoying his life, and, you know, enjoy my life with the Lord. Looking at the providence of God, not always understanding it fully, but knowing he's in control. You know, God has given us life, and he set parameters on our life, and none of us know how long that's going to be. None of us do. But when you think about it, if we live 70, 80, 90, even 100 years, How short that is. You know, when I was probably 15 years old, 14, 15 years old, there was this movie, and it was called Wild in the Streets. And I don't know why my parents let me see it, but they did. I went to see it. And it was about uh, when you hit the age of 30, you would be rounded up and put into these camps because you were really old. And at 14 or 15, I'm like, Well, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, they're really old, 30 years old. You know, I have a different perspective today on that. I'm 56. People say you're midlife. Are you kidding me? Really? I'm going to be 112 years old? Give me a break. I'm not midlife. I'm past it. But here's the thing. I don't know how much longer I have to live. A year, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. I don't know but I want to use it to the fullest to the Lord, right? I mean, don't you want, I don't want to go to heaven going, man, I wish I would have done a little bit more. I I want to go to heaven when I'm preaching from the pulpit, I say amen, and then I'm gone. That would be awesome. Because I really don't like the death process. I just want to go boom, you know? I think, you know, like, I think it was the psalmist who said, you know, help me to number my days. To know you know, to realize that my time is short here on earth. And my purpose here on earth is to glorify God and to let people see Jesus in me, to let them hear the gospel message. And people go, Oh, but the world is so bad today. It is bad. But wasn't it bad in Paul's day? Wasn't it wicked? I mean, Rome was not great, homosexuality was rampant. Most of the emperors were homosexuals. It was bad. And yet the light of God shined. Can it happen now? Absolutely. Will our nation turn around? I don't know if our nation will ever turn around. But here's the one thing I do know. People will get saved. That's our responsibility. And it's as people get saved that the nation is turned around. You see, we're living in a time where the majority rules. Let's turn it around and make that majority Christians. Bible-believing Christians who believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father except through him. Let us give, give the good news of Jesus. Let them see who the real Jesus is, the Jesus of the Bible, and not this fake Jesus who just accepts every, every kind of immoral sin, and you know, you can continue doing it. Give them the truth, and let and understand that God has a plan and a purpose for each of our lives. I mean, to me, that's wonderful. God has a plan, a purpose for each of us, and for you know, Paul. Paul just wants Philemon to understand. Look, Onesimus is a brother in the Lord, man. The hand of God has been upon this man; he's saved now. Just accept them back. Rejoice in what God has done. And again, you know, I realize as we look at some of the things happening in this world, there are a lot of things that just grieves my heart. And I'll just share this story with you. Uh, It's from July 9th, 2015. It kind of shows where the church is going. And you know, maybe your blood pressure is a little low. We'll help fix that right now. And maybe some of you are a little tired. I will definitely help fix that right now. Because I think after I get done with this, you're not going to be happy. But as you're going to see, it's the providence of God. Following more than 500 years of separation, American and European Protestant leaders met with Pope Francis last week to finalize the reunification of the two churches under the Holy See. The historic agreement is the result of a year's worth of unpublicized talks between Protestant leaders in the Vatican. Prominent American pastors, Joel Osteen and Rick Warren, respectively, as well as Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, were among the Protestant delegation that met with Pope Francis last week. Pastor Warren, founder of Saddleback Church in Lake Forest, California, spoke with members of the international press in St. Peter's Square, saying, Protestants as a people have a long history of heresy. The time for reconciliation is now in order to ensure a full and dogmatic transition into the folds of the church, the Roman Catholic Church. Moments before meeting with reporters, the entire Protestant delegation, for the first time ever, Enter the confessional to take part individually in the sacrament of penance. It's important that we participate in these sacred rituals before asking our congregation to do the same. Pastor Osteen said, adding that his time in confession was an immensely moving experience. As Protestants around the world make the transition to Catholicism, many are wondering what exactly, what, wondering what exactly that means for them. First and foremost, we acknowledge the Pope's infallibility with regard to universal moral declarations. The authority of church, the church magistrate, faith, An ex cathedra said father cliff borgen a former protestant pastor who was the first of the delegation to be ordained as a priest at the vatican secondly we participate in the sacrament of the eucharist by accepting the actual body and blood of christ an event known as transubstantiation at the conclusion of the holy mass as part of their induction into the catholic faith again we're being inducted into the catholic faith now many of us have come out of it now we're going back all Protestants above the age of 15 are required to undergo a Catholic confirmation, one of three sacraments of initiation, out of seven total, which Catholics can receive. Most, if not all, of us have been baptized, said Father Brogan. However, without formal confirmation, our Protestant Baptists will be null, thus preventing us from entering the kingdom of heaven. So we can't get into heaven. Yet. Until we go back to the Catholic Church. Additionally, during the transition period, American Protestant families whose children attend Sunday school are to receive vouchers allowing them to participate in CCD programs at, at area Catholic churches. In a show of support for the reunification under the Holy See, the United Kingdom announced Wednesday that it is taking steps to reunify Northern Ireland with the Republic of Ireland. The government of the U.K. has acknowledged the stark differences between the two countries. But according to one official, we are, for the first time, one people united under the Bishop of Rome, acting together as the bride and servant of Christ. After service this evening, uh, we'll be checking your blood pressure, so don't worry. We'll get that taken care of for you. Now, here's the thing. Do you realize the number of people who go to Saddleback Church where Rick Warren is the pastor is over 19,000. That's not including all the parachurch organizations that they are affiliated and with the many churches even here in Wisconsin that are affiliated with, with uh, Saddleback. In fact, even Calvary Chapel is associating itself with Rick Warren not here or in Manitowoc but other big Calvaries. Calvary Chapel Bible College in Murrieta, California is teaching a class of purpose-driven Go figure that one out. Scratch your head. Do you really want to associate with a man who is joining with the Pope? I hope not. Joe Osteen. He had, in Houston, Texas, in Lakewood Church, over 43,000 people. Plus, again, all the parachurch organizations that are affiliated with him. Look at those those numbers. How many people are affected? How many people have read read purpose-driven books by Rick Warren? And now, what are they saying about us, the Protestant church, that we have a long history of heresy. Really? Now, we're not perfect. I understand that. We are not perfect. We make mistakes. But here's the difference. We have a book called the Bible that tells us what's right and what's wrong. This is our guidebook. They have the words of men. And that's a huge difference. Is there a difference between the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church? Well, why do you think the, there was the protest? Why do you think there was that separation years ago, some 500 years ago? Because there was a difference. As Protestants, we believe our salvation is based by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Period. I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. I understand what they believe because I grew up there. They believe that Jesus Christ, God became flesh, dwelt among us, went to the cross of Calvary to pay in full the penalty for their sins. They believe that, but, and whenever you put a bud in as a human, that's always a bad thing. When God does it, it's always good, when man does it, it's bad. You also have to go to Mass, you have to have the sacraments, you have to do this. And even after you do all those things, when you die, you don't go to heaven, you go to purgatory because you have to atone for your sins there in purgatory. We don't know how long that is, but when you're done, you get to go to heaven. That negates what the scriptures say. Jesus said, Was he hung from the cross of Calvary, he cried out to Telestai, it is finished, paid in full. That means every single one of our sins have been nailed to the cross of Calvary. They have been paid for. And can you really atone for your own sins? And if you could, why did Jesus even come in the first place? It makes no sense. And my blood pressure is going up. we don't have to go to a we don't have to confess our sins before a pastor or a priest. I mean, could you imagine now in these protestant churches setting up confessionals that you would go and confess your sins to, you know, pastor Dwight? Obviously that would never happen. But can you imagine? The Bible tells me and again, that's my only source for truth, that there is one mediator between God and man and that is Christ Jesus. I don't have to go to anyone else. I go to him. And they are working. You know, the Catholic Church was never into evangelism, you know, reaching out. They are now. I have a friend at Calvary Chapel of Manitowoc, one of my elders, who's working with a, a relative of his who is high up within the Catholic Church, and he's trying to draw him back into the Catholic Church. And it's so amazing. It just they never used to do that before, but now this is what they're after. You, years ago there was those commercials, you know, welcoming Protestants back home. Come back home to the Mother Church. You know, I just want to go home to Father God. I'm a simpleton. I know some of you are thinking that's great, Joe. I'm going to bed in a couple hours and now I'm going to be up tossing and turning thinking about all this garbage. Well, you're welcome. Now, hear me out on this cuz this is this is where it gets a little tricky, okay? This is the providence of God. Okay? Revelation chapter 13, we see this false prophet who has come together and united the religions of the world to worship the Antichrist. So this merger between the Protestant church and the Catholic church is a prelude to what's coming. The Protestant church that is joining forces with the Catholic church, they're not saved. Let's face it, if you believe you can work your way into heaven, you're not saved. If you live by the law, you're going to die by the law. If you're trying to live by the law and you break one law, you're guilty of them all. So that's not going to work. And so, this is the hand of God. God has already told us these things are going to happen. Well, what's our response to it? What should we be doing? Rescuing people out of that, right? That's our mission. We know this is going to happen because that's what the Bible says. We can't prevent it from happening, but we could rescue people out of that. And that's what my friend is trying to do. Is to He's going to be bringing his friend, the Roman Catholic, to Calvary Chapel of Manitowoc. And then he's going to go over to the Catholic Church and hear the message. Well, there's not really a message. It's just kind of up and down, up and down. and See you later. But my prayer is, Lord, open his heart. It doesn't matter where we're at in the Bible. Your word is living and powerful. Speak to him. Show him. And he is, there are some issues that he's struggling with. He doesn't agree with this pope, which I find fascinating. In fact, he's come to the point of saying, well, you know, the Catholics believe that the last pope is, is going to be the like the devil. So this representative of Christ on the earth is really the devil. How many others were? Kind of interesting, huh? We are living in a day where... I'm more concerned about the church than the world. The church wants us to compromise our faith. Stand strong. The providence of God, the hand of God is working. Jude said, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write you, exhorting you to earnestly contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Earnestly contend for that. Don't give up. And understand, when you see things happening like we're seeing, the hand of God at work. We see it. You hear, even the Pope was saying that we need a leader in this world that will help stop global warming. What's he talking about? He's talking about a world leader that's over all the nations of the world. One world government. Well, that's what the Bible says. They think they come up with these ideas themselves. (laughs) They should just read the book and come to the savior of the book, right? Absolutely. I'll close with this. The providence of God, we need to learn to rest in him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your hand is upon our life and really upon this entire world, that nothing happens without your knowledge And, Lord, you've warned us so much through your word about the things that are going to be happening. And thus, we see your hand at work. We see the providence of God. And, Lord, help us to rest in you. For those that may be going through tough times tonight, Lord, we just pray that your peace, your comfort would be upon them, that, Father, they would just rest in you. And, Lord, yeah, it may be very difficult, and I'm not downplaying it at all, but, Lord, just to learn to trust and rest in you, the comfort of God, the providence of God, the hand of God upon their life. Lord, for all of us, help us to trust in you, just to rest in you. We love you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.